We are continuing our summer series entitled The Story, Stranger Things. A few years ago, we went through a book called The Story. The Story, it edits the Bible to read more like a novel. It uses word-for-word scripture from the NIV, and so anything you are reading in the story, you are, you are reading scripture. Uh, there are three perspectives that the story brought us that we are carrying over into this uh, series, and when we talk from those perspectives, we move places up here, uh, up front. Uh, and so there's the lower story perspective, which is the view of what is happening in the Bible, and when we talk about that, we stand here. Uh, when we move to the upper story over there, we talk about the view of God's perspective of what's happening in the Bible. And then when we move down below by the chair, that is the our story view, which is the perspective of how the Bible intersects with the story of each of our individual lives. And the Story Stranger Things series, what we want to walk away with, or um, what we want to remember, is that while we have a very high view of Scripture, it is the Word of God, that we also know that there are some strange and weird and odd stories in the Bible. And we want to remind ourselves that in the biblical story and our story, God is at work in the unexpected things of life. Again, in our lives, sometimes we get blindsided. Things happen that we never saw coming or never imagined could happen. And when that happens, we wonder, is God still with us? And we want this series to remind us that, yes, God is at work in the unexpected things in our lives. The verses that we've been wanting to keep in front of us have been challenging you to memorize Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, the Bible seems strange in part because it's written in different time and culture, but it also seems strange, as these verses allude to, because God is different from us. We have expectations of how God should be, and so then when God doesn't act like we think God should act, well, that's because he's different from us. So, of course, he's going to seem strange. This morning, we're going to look at a story where it seems like God gambles with Satan. It's from the book of Job. Book of Job is a long book, over 40 chapters. Clearly can't go through it all in one morning. But I'm just going to give you the high points, the overview of the book. So Job is a man of wealth who feared God. God and Satan have an argument over him. And so God allows Satan to kill his children, take away his wealth, and cover his body with sores. Job contends that God has allowed him to suffer even though he has done nothing wrong. Job's companions come along and tell him, no, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned in order to be suffering like you are. Then God speaks, Job repents, and God makes Job prosper again. That's an overview of the book of Job. Our scripture reader for this morning is Jay Gomer. Jay, if you make your way on up, he's going to read from Job uh, chapter 1. I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. And we face the center of the room as a reminder to us where Scripture is to be in our lives, both as a community of faith and as individuals in the center. And so, Jay, whenever you are ready, please read from Job chapter 1. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, 
and Satan, the adversary, also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Jay, thank you very much. You may be seated. Now, I want to start out with a strange fact, and that's the fact that we know nearly nothing about Job uh, from the story. We don't know really when he lived. We don't know where he lived. We don't know much about who he interacted with. And what's weird about that is that in Job chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. So the greatest man of his time. And we know very little about him. Now just compare that for a second with what we know about Job to what we know about other great people from the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David. We know where they're from. We know where they lived. We know about their parents. We know about siblings. We know the names of their wives and children. We know about many of their interactions, whether it was with kings or other dignitaries. Job was the greatest man of his time, and we don't have any of those details. We know so little about him. And there's a good chance that that was intentional, that God doesn't want us to know much about Job. Because the bottom line is the question about innocent suffering. That question is a timeless question. That question isn't limited to one time. That question isn't limited to one place. Everyone from every place throughout all time has to wrestle with the question, why does it seem like there is innocent suffering? Sure, there's suffering that we can explain and understand, but all of us have experienced suffering that just doesn't make sense. We're all, we all have to wrestle with that question, and all of us. Our grandparents had to wrestle with this question, and for all of us, if we have grandkids, they're going to have to wrestle with this question. The question of the innocent suffering is a timeless question, and so it would make sense that a book about it would be about a man that we don't know much about where he lived or when he lived. Because it's a question for all time. The passage we read, there's this strange encounter, again, what I'm calling a wager between God and Satan. And conversations between God and the evil one are pretty rare in the Bible. I can only think of two. I'm not going to count the time in the garden where God condemns the snake 
And the reason that one doesn't count is it's really not a conversation because the snake never speaks back to God. God does all the speaking. But there is this conversation between God and Satan, and then there's a conversation between the devil and Jesus in the desert. And in the desert, in that conversation, the devil, devil played the role as a tempter. In this story, Satan is playing the role of the accuser, the adversary. That's literally what Satan means. It means the accuser. Now, we often think Satan, he's the red guy with horns, pitchfork, and he lives in hell. Well, there's a different picture to Satan in this story. Here he's with the angels, and his primary role is to accuse. Again, Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, where Satan says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, Satan accuses. He accuses God of protecting and blessing Job to gain Job's favor. He accuses Job of being a fair-weathered follower. And so Satan dares God to strike down everything Job has, which God allows. And then in chapter 2, there's another very similar interaction between Satan and God, in which then God allows Satan to cover his body with sores, Job's body. But while Satan is the accuser, in this story, God initiates the challenge. Again, we just read verses 9 to 12. Now let's go back and read verses 6 to 8. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Before Satan does any accusing, God says, Have you considered Job, my servant Job? And then he starts bragging about him. He's this and this and this and this and this and this. Now look, you don't have to be an all-knowing God to know how Satan, the accuser, is going to respond to this. God parades a faithful follower in front of the accuser, knowing that the accuser is going to accuse. Why would God do that? That doesn't make any sense. And again, we may try to make sense of this story and try to defend God, but the book of Job itself in those two chapters doesn't try to defend God. This kind of lays it out. This is how it is. It's the point of the book that the bottom line is Job's suffering makes no sense. That's the point. And that's okay. It's okay to have a story in the Bible 
where there is suffering that doesn't make sense. And the reason that's okay is because that should resonate with each and every one of us. Because we've all experienced suffering that we cannot explain. It just doesn't make sense. Again, I know most of you. And I am familiar that many of you have suffered things that are just inexplicable. You have had inexplicable things happen to your health. Inexplicable things happen to your children or your parents or your brother or sister or your friends. You've had inexplicable things happen to your job or career or your plans. And as a pastor, I feel like I need to sometimes try to explain some of the suffering that you experience. And the honest truth is, most of the time, I don't know. I can't explain it. I don't know why you've experienced what you've experienced. See, the story of inexplicable suffering is one that should resonate with us. And in Job, it just didn't make sense. And for many of us, it just doesn't make sense. In the story, Job has a logic, and the logic is very simple. It's God rewards me when I do good, and God punishes me when I do bad. In fact, that logic goes from chapter 3 to chapter 27. Job and his friends operate under this assumption. His friends tell him that he must have done something wrong. That's why he's suffering. Job says, no, no, I haven't done anything wrong, so I shouldn't be suffering. And that goes back and forth for 20 chapters. In fact, I'll just confess, when I'm reading those chapters, I just start skimming because it's the same story. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. You must have. No, I didn't. You know, just, it gets boring. 20 chapters of that. Okay, I get it. But it's the dominant assumption of the book, in part because I think it's the dominant worldview that most of us hold. Most of us expect the world to operate. Sort of like God is the principle of the universe. And he goes around and he hands out gold stars when we do the right thing, and he puts us in detention when we do the wrong thing. That's how God operates, right? But the strange reality is, God doesn't always operate that way. Again, back in the spring or winter, we did this series on Proverbs not too long ago. And Pastor Brian, uh, one week, shared about the difference in Proverbs between a principle and a promise. Don't know if you remember this, where promises are guarantees. And a principle, while true, isn't a guarantee. So, for example, train your child in the way they should go, and they will not depart from it. That's a principle, not a guarantee. It's still a very good idea. And, if we th and when we think that God always rewards when we do good and God always punishes when we do bad, and, if he, and he does that immediately or in a very timely fashion, well, no, that's not a guarantee. Principle, yes. Promise, no. Final judgment, promise, yes. 
The evil always suffering in a timely manner? No, that's not a promise. Good people always prospering in a timely manner? No, that's not a promise. Those are principles. God in the story finally speaks. And when he does, he never really addresses Job's concern. Job wants an answer for his suffering. God really never addresses it. Here's God's response. The first thing that God says to Job in chapter 38, verses 1 to 7. Here are the first seven verses of God's response. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Now look, this is pretty clearly. God is giving Job the what for. He's putting Job in his place. Who are you to question me? Where were you when I created the universe? And in those seven verses, God does a really good job of putting Job in his place. The question is, why does God continue on and on and on and on for three chapters? He does this for three chapters. Is this like a parent who loses their cool when their kids once again, you know, won't do what they're asked? You know, and then the parents, you know, they go off on this tantrum, you know, what I call a parent tantrum. We brought you into this world. We fed you and clothed you, gave you a place to live. We loved you. We drive you to dance lessons and basketball practice. We freeze when you are playing spring soccer. We have worked hard to give you all these opportunities that we never had when we were kids. And this is the thanks we get. You roll your eyes when we ask you to take out the garbage. You know, and then you go on and on and on for 20 more minutes. It's overkill, folks. Okay, the kids hear it after the first three sentences. It's not going to change their behavior, but they heard it, all right? Well, God goes on for three chapters. Is this just a tantrum? Is it overkill? Let's just look at some of the things that God says in these chapters. Verse 38, verse 12. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Verses 25 to 27. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? 
Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. The bottom line is that God is more complex than we can comprehend. Now, I know we know that, but I don't really think we know that. God is more complex than we can comprehend. Now, in those verses, in those chapters, God talks a lot about managing animals in these three chapters. He, ma- he talks about lions and horses and hawks, eagles, goats, donkeys, oxen, ostrich, a few others. So let's just go with that theme for a second. Let's try to manage the animals. For 250 years, humanity has been studying animal species. Do you know how many different kinds of animal species there are? If you don't, that's okay, because no one does. According to the article in, uh, in the California Academy of Sciences, the best, tightest estimate is 8 to 10 million species. Many people put the range between 3 and 30 million species. So that means our best guess is within 2 million? See, we don't even know how many animal species are there. And after studying them for 250 years, over 80% of the land species have yet to be discovered, described, and cataloged. Over 90% of water species have yet to be discovered, described, and cataloged. Some of the brightest minds in all of humanity have been studying animal species for 250 years, and we've only identified 15% of them. And if you're wondering, how is that possible? Just think insects, think about the vast array of sea life. Again, just as an example, scientists guesstimate that there are 10,000 species of sponges. 10,000 species of sponges. That means that if we were to discover one new species of sponge every day, it would take us about 30 years to just discover all of the sponges. And that doesn't sound like a great accomplishment. Well, we got all the sponges covered after 30 years. There are porophora sponges. There are calcareous sponges. I can't even pronounce this. There are demosponge sponges. There's SpongeBob SquarePants sponges. There are all sorts of sponges. And that's just species. How about just the total number of animals on the planet? Look at the number. I don't even know what number that is. Okay? I heard one pronunciation of the number. It's 20 billion billion. That doesn't even sound like a real number. You know, it sounds like a number kids use when they're bragging about something, you know? My dad can lift 20 billion billion pounds. You know, that's what it sounds like. But not only has God created all those species and all these animals, but God has developed and he oversees an ecosystem so they can all live. And after 250 years, we can't even identify how many species there are. There are over 6 billion people on the planet. And yeah, they have food concerns and water concerns and shelter concerns, sure. But these 6 billion people, they also have hopes. And they also have dreams. And they also have fears. And they also have failures. They have a network of relationships of family and friends. 
And within all of that, God is still able to work in each and every one of us on a personal level. How complex must that be? Folks, we don't know. We don't appreciate the magnitude of what God does. Now, over thousands of years, people have been studying Scripture. They've discovered seven different reasons for suffering. Again, and this work has been put together by a guy named the Reverend Scott Heinrichs. And I, let me just share the first six, okay? Uh, there's divine ordination. When God calls you home, your time on earth is over. There's reaping what you sow. The reason people suffer is because they make the wrong choices. That was what Job operated under. Uh, there's character development. Suffering develops character. There's learning. The really important lessons in life come through suffering. There's counterpoint. Suffering and pleasure are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. For example, you cannot have a resurrection without a death. Uh, broken world. Suffering occurs randomly in a broken world. Now, how many reasons for suffering do you think there are in God's point of view? Again, we've been thinking about this for thousands of years, and we've come up with six. Sure, you might be able to come up with a handful more. Here's a seventh mystery. Sometimes it is not our place to know why, why suffering happens. So it makes sense that we cannot explain all of our suffering. We only have six options. Even if we got this list up to 20, a God who has created a world as complex as ours surely operates beyond the reasons of suffering that we can possibly come up with. God is more complex than we can comprehend. Again, God's answer to Job is a strange answer. And it's a strange answer to the fact that it's really not an answer at all. God's answer to Job isn't an answer. In Job 30, verse 20, Job says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Job 31, 35, he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. God speaks. And he doesn't answer Job. He talks for three chapters about the complexity of the world, the complexity of God. But how are we to respond when God allows us to suffer? Yeah, it's, it's good to ask, why did this happen? But it's also really important for us to ask when we suffer, what do I do now? What do I do now? I'm hurting. God could have prevented it. He didn't. Now what do I do? I've mentioned many times the story of my mother-in-law when she passed away 10 years ago. I've talked about it numerous times up here. She was 53, diagnosed with cancer in February. She passed away in April. And she was two years from retirement and all she wanted to do after she retired was hang out with the grandkids. That's, that was her dream. Her funeral was on either a Wednesday or a Thursday. I can't quite remember. And I do remember, though, that 
my wife and my father-in-law and I, we went to church that Saturday after her funeral. Funeral Wednesday, Thursday, we were in church on Saturday. My in-laws, they went to a mega church in Southern California and they had Saturday evening services and so we went. And they uh, had a guest speaker um, and he was some former manager of the Beatles, can't remember, but he had a great faith story. And um, a part of his story was a couple years before he was speaking, he was diagnosed with cancer, he wasn't expected to live, and God miraculously healed him. Now, I love those stories. We've got those stories here at TFRC, people being miraculously healed from cancer and other things. But it was really hard to hear because it was just two days before that we had the service for my mother-in-law who died of cancer. Where's the miracle? And I remember sitting in the back of that church with my wife and my father-in-law. And it's like, now what do we do? What do we do now? You know, Satan's goal in the story is the accuser's goal was to separate Job from God. And that's the danger of suffering, is that it can separate us from God. It can make us walk away. Again, getting angry at God, that's okay. God can handle our anger. He's, he's a pretty big guy. He can handle it, okay? But the danger is we walk away. Separating from God is the danger of suffering. But when we suffer, the bottom line is we need God's presence. That's what we need. It wasn't in the details of the answer that Job got what he wanted. It was the fact that God showed up at all. That's what Job really needed. And when we suffer, we need God to show up. Last week, Pastor John talked about wrestling with God. And wrestling with God is good. Because the only way you can wrestle with someone is to be in close contact with them. By definition, you know, wrestling, it's a close contact sport. You have to get close to God if you're going to wrestle with him. And in Job chapter 13, verse 15, he says this, Job does. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Hoping and defending. That sounds like Job was wrestling. When we suffer, we need God's presence. One of the things that Jesus was called was Emmanuel. And many of you know what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. And with God being so complex, we need to know if he is worth trusting, if he can be trusted. Again, when we suffer and we can't explain, how do we know that we can trust God? that he's worth having faith in. Again, Jesus, God in the flesh, he came to suffer and die on our behalf 
So he knows what innocent suffering feels like. He knows that. But Jesus also came to show us what God was like. Again, God in the flesh. So according to Jesus, what does this complex God think of human suffering? We need to know, Jesus. What do you have to say about that? So according to Jesus, what did God have to say about, or what does God think about sickness? What did Jesus say to the sick? He said, be healed. What does God think of blindness? What did Jesus say to the blind? He said, see. Leprosy. What did Jesus say about leprosy? What does God think about leprosy? Be cleansed. Death. What does God think about death, Jesus? Little girl, get up. That's what God thinks about suffering. The Lord is worth trusting, even when we suffer. The Lord is worth trusting, especially when we suffer. In your times of suffering, will you seek out God's presence? You know, there's questions that all of us have to answer in our times of suffering. When I suffer, do I still believe God cares? When I suffer, do I believe God will bring me comfort? When I suffer, do I believe God will give me the strength to make it through? When I suffer, do I believe God is still worth honoring? Those are all vital questions that we have to answer at some point in our suffering. In your times of suffering, will you seek out God's presence? Please pray with me. Lord, I just want to lift up each person here who may be in the middle of just inexplicable suffering, and they're wondering why, and their world has just been turned upside down, and I would ask that you would make your presence very real to them. To bring them comfort, to give them strength, to reassure them that you are still with them. And Lord, we do, we thank you for Jesus who showed us what you think about our suffering. And that even though you may not heal each and every one of us or resolve every one of our situations, that you are there for us, guiding us each step of the way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.